0: They're so good, they make us want to sing like
1: I can't believe it Burger King made a grill dog Made with 100% beef. Flame anytime you want
0: This July 4th weekend, put down the tongs, step away from the grill, and get to Burger King to try a grilled dog for just a dollar. Ask for the Dollar Grill Dog deal and get a classic grill dog for a dollar. Only at Burger King. At participating restaurants on July 2nd and 3rd, limit five per transaction while supplies last. Welcome to Real GM Radio. I'm your host, Daniel LaRue. Thank you so much for joining us. We have two great guests for you this week. First up, we have Haven Kaplan-Minor of Real GM, and we also have Jared Weiss of CLNS Radio in Boston. First up, we have Haven. He is a contributing writer for Real GM. He's currently writing a series called Fix It, where he discusses how each team in the NBA can improve. And since he's based out of Portland, he and I primarily discuss the surprising start for the Blazers and the success of the team, and also ways that they can improve both this year and moving forward. Runs is about 22 minutes. Hope you enjoy it. So thank you so much for coming on. Thanks for having me. This Blazers team, to most people, has been one of the bigger surprises of the year, more in terms of the, let's say, the severity of the success. Have you been surprised by how well they've been?
2: Absolutely. No one around here expected them to be this dominant. Anyone that would say differently is lying.
0: Would you say that it it's been more of a kind of an overall increase in production by more players, or have had? Would you attribute it to specific players stepping up?
2: I would say everyone has played exceptionally well this season. I think a lot of players have matured a lot, namely Lamarcus Aldridge, who, despite being an All Star the last two years, is playing out of his mind this year and is far better than he's ever been before.
0: And this offense period require all five players on the floor particularly well particularly the one through four to be really engaged offensively do you agree with that kind of assessment of the team so far
2: yeah absolutely the team has been um, extremely active has been extremely unselfish and making sure that whoever is open is going to get the shot Uh, nobody's really forcing many shots you can tell if you look at the stats you know everybody other than Lillard is shooting a really high percentage because they're taking open shots they're you know what the defense gives them they're taking
0: But I did not expect Lillard to make as big of a jump as he did, considering the fact that he was such an old rookie. Was that something that surprised you, too, or were you expecting more from him?
2: No, you know, I felt like he was a bit uh, disrespected coming into the season. Everyone really liked Anthony Davis and felt like he was the guy in that draft class. And I I agree that he's a very, very talented player, but Lillard, despite being in college for four years, there's no reason to think he was not... Ready to just be the next great point guard. He played exceptionally well, but there's no, there's nothing to say that he wasn't going to get continue to get better. He's such an extremely hard worker. He has been repping Oakland so hard since the day he stepped on the court for the Blazers. He he loves the game and he loves working too much to let anything stand in his way of being a top five point guard. I expected him to you know be an all star this year, and I think he will be.
0: The Western Conference all-stars it's going to be such a tough group assuming that people stay relatively healthy where do you have him right now within the overall kind of arc of the western conference point guard structure you know
2: it's it's pretty it's a very tight race i think you know the absolute locks kobe which is unfortunate chris paul tony parker probably just because he's the best player on that team and Steph Curry is going to get in guaranteed based on him getting snubbed last season. So I, I have him right after that, you know, number five. I think, I think he could sneak in. I think if an injury here or there, probably Steph Curry, uh, just based on his injury history, if he is to get injured or they want a fifth guard on that team, I think that he would be right there.
0: Matthews has been, he, he's been a good player in the league for, for a period of time, and he got, you know, a, an interesting contract when they when the Blazers got him from the Jazz, but it feels like he's really taken a leap this year. Do you attribute a lot of that to Lillard, or just improvement in his game?
2: I, you know, I was not that big on West when he first came. I thought he was a solid rotation player, and I felt like he was just kind of who he was. He was going to hit threes, and he was going to uh, play good defense, but you know, as the years have progressed, he's actually just, he's worked on his game a lot. This year he came in, he was actually able to dribble a little bit, drive to the basket. He had a little bit of a post game that has been working out pretty well this season. I think his overall development, he's a he's probably a top 10 shooting guard at this point, And I, I think it helps a lot that he doesn't have to deal with covering the basket much. But the fact that he's able to do it this season has definitely been helpful.
0: Do you think that there's still potential in Nicola, in Nicola Batum as kind of an offensive and a defensive player than what he's shown so far? Because he's, he's been better this year, too, but it feels like he always has more that he could be doing.
2: Yeah, you know, last year I went to his first triple-double against the Wizards, and it was one of those games where he just didn't want to shoot. You know, I, I think that he kind of figured out that he was actually a pretty good passer, and, you know, he's already – Clearly, good at defense, and he's been getting rebounds this year. But as soon as he figured out the passing aspect, he kind of just started focusing on that, and he's been, you know, a really good playmaker. It's I would like him to score more, but if he's going to be a do everything kind of guy like a Pippen or an Iguodala, I would absolutely love that on this team. It takes a lot of the pressure off Lillard and Wes and Mo Williams, so he doesn't have to he doesn't have to pass as much, and they can all play off the ball and get open threes. Is it-
0: any ex- kind of expectation or common wisdom on what what's going to happen with C.J. McCollum the rest of this year, whether he's coming back, if he's coming back, all that kind of stuff.
2: Well, from the sound of it, it seems like he's going to be back in the next month or two. Probably sooner than later, he's out there shooting. He's practicing with them now. Um, I don't think he's cleared for full contact yet, but he should be coming back relatively soon. I would guess. I, I would guess he's going to the D League at some point uh, when he first comes back. But I would. I would think after that he's probably going to come in and you know, score a little bit, play off the ball mostly. But I think he should be a really good addition to the team. Another guy that can come in, shoot jump shots, and take the ball out of Lillard's hand so he can play off screens and everything else.
0: Do you expect McCollum on this team will mostly play will mostly play shooting guard because of the guys that they already have at point guard?
2: Yeah, I think he's he's mostly going to play off guard. I think he'll probably take some ball handling. Away from Lillard, but I think that he'll mostly just be the two guard. He's about the same size as Lillard, a little bigger than Mo Williams, but he's a shooter. You know, he's he's not the playmaker that Lillard is or Mo Williams is, but if he is going to be out on the court, he's going to be shooting. And so I think his best role is going to be as a guy running off screens and getting an open shot.
0: So this team also still has flexibility, both in terms of the players that they have and financial flexibility in terms of adding more pieces. Do you have any expectation for whether they should do that or whether they will do that?
2: I think that they're being cautiously optimistic here. Um, You know, no one expects them to do this well, so I think if they have the opportunity to mortgage a little bit of their future to get better this season and make more of a run, I think they'll do it. I don't think they're going to trade a bunch of first-round draft picks, you know, a la the Nets or the Knicks or anything like that. But I think that if they get the right opportunity, you know, trading a Thomas Robinson still has some potential and some value around the league, along with Myers Leonard or somebody that isn't really playing much on this team, they would take a you know a solid guy uh, back. But it's more than likely it's going to be a, a good player that just isn't getting the minutes, or a good player that another team wants to get some value out of. Omar Asik is somebody who a lot of a lot of people have uh, put together with the Blazers. The Blazers are not going to trade two first-round draft picks for a year and a half of that guy, uh, especially now with Robin Lopez playing as well as he has. I think if the right guy comes along, though, and the price isn't crazy, I would be surprised if they didn't jump at it.
0: What do you feel is the biggest need or the biggest hole that could be filled on this team for the rest of this season?
2: Well, you know, this team is playing so incredibly well. I think that a, a, a third, a third big guy would be really helpful. I think LaMarcus is playing out of his mind, so is Robin Lopez, and I think Joel Freeland has actually been exceptional coming out of last season. I did not expect him to be nearly as good or as defensively dominant as he's been at times this season. But I think if they're able to get a third guy to kind of push Joel out a little bit so that Joel can just kind of play more spot minutes, I think that would be terrific. I also feel that if Robin Lopez could be the third third guy, which is kind of unrealistic, especially the way he's playing right now, but if they were able to somehow steal a really talented center somewhere on the market, that would be tremendous. But it would have to be somebody that's just like Lopez, but better, and there are not a lot of them
0: out there do you see that third big man as probably being a center and then so to kind of spell Lopez in whichever configuration and then how would you see the minutes behind Aldridge shaking out in a situation like that?
2: Yeah well that was, that's where it kind of gets tough and um, I think that the third big man would kind of be a guy that could play uh, both power forward and center. You know I would love to name someone and say that this guy would be a perfect fit but there really isn't and so you know, that's the biggest need, but I don't know if there's a guy that would really fill the role that well. You're looking for a guy that's going to get 15 or 20 minutes, probably, and that's what Freeland is doing for you, but getting somebody a little bit better than Freeland would be having your kick, eating a few, pretty much.
0: One thing that I've noticed with this Blazers team is that they've, they have a really good group, particularly of starters, but I'm concerned that... More susceptible to any injury in the top five than most teams. I think that they're at the top. That's true of everybody. You know, any team in the West losing one of their top two guys that's devastating. The Warriors are seeing that right now. But do you feel that that that's a fair statement? That losing any guy in their starting five would be would be pretty damaging to this team.
2: For long term uh, reasons, absolutely. I don't think this team could sustain itself for a playoff run or for the whole season if one of those top five uh, or actually really top six guys falls out. You added Mo Williams there. I think for spot duty, if it's not a big injury, I think that they could sustain themselves at point guard with Mo Williams. I don't think we would be as good. I have no idea what would happen with Lamarcus because he's playing so well this season that the whole team has kind of revolved around him. It's definitely a problem that they don't have five other guys off the bench, but no team does, as you're saying. So the best thing you can do is get some of those youngsters that aren't really playing a lot like Claver and Martin and Crab and, and Myers Leonard and give them a little bit more time now so that they can develop in case injury does arise.
0: There are players from what we've seen in there that you, that you think that somebody who can really blossom with more playing time.
2: Yeah. You know, I, I really like Earl, right? I think he's been, he's been playing a little bit more as of late, but uh, he hasn't really kind of found his niche yet. Uh, he has a little bit more lately, but just pretty much with threes. Uh, I think Alan Crabb is a guy that he hasn't been playing much, and I think it's because he kind of, he's just not very good defensively and he can't dribble the ball. Those are those are really what his issues are, but if they could find a way to sneak him into some games, he's such a good shooter. He's basically Rick Hamilton, just not nearly <laughs> as talented uh, yet. And I think that they're not as skilled yet, but. I think that if he was to get some more minutes, he could definitely spot Western and Matthews a lot. He could, he can do a lot of the same things on offense. He is just not there defensively yet.
0: And with him for defense, it feels like it's more just kind of background and effort than necessarily an issue of physical talent. Cause he, uh, he doesn't seem too slow for his position.
2: No, he's actually very quick. The problem is he's just kind of, he's he, the reason I compared him to Rick Hamilton there is cause he's just kind of, he's very thin. And so, he can keep up with a player, but if NBA two guards are so physical, they're very big a lot of the time, just like Wes. So I I would imagine that any two guard that really is gonna be defended by him for a full game is just gonna take him to the block every single time and try to take advantage of his his their their size advantage over him.
0: That may make, that makes a lot of sense. In terms of Terry Stotts, do you think that there are more wrinkles to this offense that are coming? I mean, it's running so well, it's kind of hard to even think that it can really get better than it has.
2: I think that the offense is working extremely well, and I can imagine that with BJ coming back or coming for the first time, they'll add little bits of more of the same, really. You know, having more weapons is always important, and I think Stotts understands that. And If you go back and look at the 2011 uh, Dallas Mavericks team, they're, they were able to just play so unselfishly, shoot they extremely high percentage because they had so many different guys that could shoot the ball and could score from anywhere. And I think that CJ coming back, the, you'll see the offense kind of just continue to turn into that Mavericks team. They were so good uh, because they just had every weapon, and the more weapons that Stotts has at his disposal, the better this team is going to be.
0: Do you think that there's a spot for Thomas Robinson in the next couple of years on this team, or is he his value to the Blazers at this point more as a trade asset than on this team?
2: I think that he could potentially be a, a J.J. Hickson for this team. J.J. was very good for the Blazers for the last two seasons, and his primary thing was being, hustle, being a hustle guy, dunking on people, and getting rebounds. He could not play a lick of defense. Robinson can play a little bit of defense and can fit in with this team. And so I think that if he is able to, you know, really work hard in the rebounding aspect, work on his jump shot, and but not take it a lot in games, I think that he could pull out 20 minutes a game, 15 minutes a game on this team. Spelling Lamarcus Aldridge would be extremely, extremely valuable coming later in the season. He's already playing 37 minutes a game. If you could keep that around there, get it a little bit lower with, a few extra minutes for Robinson, I think that would be great.
0: Well, and the other factor that hopefully can play into that in terms of the starter, the starters playing minutes there is that if they have control of games earlier on, then they can the coaching staff can manage it. But you obviously you don't want to rely on that. You want to have backups that you feel more comfortable with playing other in times other than when they're blowing somebody out.
2: Yeah, and last season we would be we would blow somebody out on rare occasion, and we would put in the backups or the players that aren't as good, uh, like Will Barden and Myers Leonard, and then the lead would just disappear immediately. And this season, we've had a little bit of trouble closing games, and so they have they felt obligated to keep the starters in a little bit longer than they actually should because of the big lead. Holding a lead is extremely valuable on this team.
0: And holding a lead, and even when we were talking about the, the importance of the entire starting five, is that the other factor in, in having those guys have confidence is that whether or not there are injuries, there will be foul trouble at various points during the season. So you'll need people to be able to step up so you can play three or four out of the five in case certain guys are hurt. Yeah,
2: yeah. and I think the fouls are actually, have actually been one of my biggest surprises this season. Um, no Blazer is even averaging three fouls a game, which seems unlikely. <laughs> For you know the the team's a very physical team they only have one guy on offense that isn't exactly lighting it up on defense and that's Lillard who is actually playing his best defense of his career
0: do you see a guy like Will Barton I've I've been fascinated with him since he was in the in the draft do you see a future for him in the league whether or not it's on Portland
2: I think that his his kind of potential is a Nick Young off the bench kind of guy I think that if he were to go to I know he is already in a second year, but I think that a D League stint would actually be really beneficial for him because he could, consistent minutes, he could take the shots that he takes now when he comes in games which are not very good or not very efficient. I think he could, you know, get some repetition. I think that would really help his development. I don't really like his game at the moment because it seems far too rely on dribbling and I don't think he's the strongest ball handler, but I do appreciate that he comes in with a lot of energy and always wants to throw down a dunk and always wants to make the highlight play I think that there's always room for that type of player and especially a guy that he's that long he's actually extremely long for his for being a 6'4 shooting guard I think there's a spot for him in the league I don't think that actually he's 6'6 I didn't know that I think there's always a spot for that kind of guy especially with his athleticism but I'm not sure how he's really going to fit long term on the team
0: Joel Freeland has outplayed Myers-Leonard so far this season. Is that kind of the new status quo? or Because it seems like there's still potential in Myers-Leonard to become far better than he's been so far.
2: Yeah, and when he came in the league, the kind of word around him was he was going to be a better offensive Joel Fersbilla. That was before he even got drafted by the Blazers, and as a Joel Fersbilla fan, uh, like every other Blazers fan, I was extremely excited. He's huge. He's really long. He can block shots. He rebounded pretty well in college. He's Actually, a very smooth player on offense. I'm surprised that he hasn't been more effective. I think a lot of it is he got beat out by Joel Freeland, who he did not expect to be as good because nobody expected him to be as good. So he came in this season, got beat out, and he lost his confidence. I think that if he gains some back, he can be a really a really solid player in this league. He should his you know his peak, uh, his promise should be a, a starting center in this NBA in the NBA, and he doesn't look like it this season because he just Seems frustrated, and I don't really blame him.
0: Is Myers Leonard at this point as the third center? Is he too important to the to the possibility of needing him in a game to put him down in the D League to build his confidence?
2: I think that's an option that they're probably going to explore. I don't. I think they could get away with putting him, sending him to the D League temporarily, but having that third big guy is is important, as you're saying. And I, he could be. He's gonna get the. He's gonna get the minutes regardless if it's in the d league or in the nba right now he might develop a little quicker if you send him to the d league but he also isn't going to get his touches the d league is so guard dominated that he's not really going to be able to get in there and get post-practice or really be anything on offense and that is where most of his value is right now he isn't very polished on defense and that's going to be something that he has to learn about in the nba
0: i'm trying to remember what portland's do they have a single affiliate, or are they combined with another team in the D-League?
2: They do. They uh, their, uh, their D-League is Boise. Yeah. So then
0: that helps, too, because then you have more control over the minutes and ball distribution and things like that.
2: Yeah, but, you know, in general, the D-League has been so guarded. I I do think that Barton will get sent down. So Also, the D-League team is 8-0 this season, so I think they have some kind of some kind of magic going right there so i'm not sure how excited they're going to be to kind of disrupt it with getting this nba guy in there obviously that's not as important as developing uh, your nba team and the players that are going to be on your team long term but i do think that's something to think about
0: are there any other are there any other topics with portland that you want to discuss
2: i'd like Alder just defense this season
0: oh that's been yeah that has been better do you think that ownership is willing to kind of pay whatever it takes to keep this team together as guys like Lillard are going to require more money in a couple of years?
2: Absolutely. Lillard's is going to get a max contract. There's kind of no doubt about it at this point, even 105 games into his career. Paul Allen has been very good. He's, you know, he's talked about selling the team a number of times, but the last couple of years he's been committed. Um, and when these teams are good, he's willing to throw whatever kind of money and whatever kind of support he needs to behind this team. In the late 90s, early 2000s, he spent millions and millions of dollars on, you know, former all-stars and big-name prospects and everybody else to try to make this team contend. Uh, And I think he really, I think it kind of goes back over to Seattle for the Seahawks, which he also owns. They're doing so well, and he's starting to throw more money at them because he wants to contend. he loves sports, and he's willing to put the money in to make his team a contender. And with this team, Aldridge is already locked up for a couple of years. Matthews has another year, I believe. Toom is locked in for four. Uh, Lillard, he's getting the max contract.
0: Well, and it's nice in, in Portland, and that's a difference with a lot of NBA teams, whether even at this point, whether we're talking about bigger markets or smaller markets, is that they have a precedent of their owner being willing to spend to keep a quality team together. So there, you can have that confidence that that will be there, where a lot of other teams catch lightning in a bottle, but then, you know, you can even see that in Oklahoma City. You know, Oklahoma City caught lightning in a bottle, but then they had to start to shed some pieces because of financial concerns. And that has to be encouraging for Blazers fans.
2: It is. And, you know, no Blazers fan has ever really been concerned about their uh, ownership being cheap, like how the Clippers have been passed, not anymore, or how Memphis is every other year. We were, for a while, buying draft picks every single year. Three million bucks pop to get a 1st round draft pick from whoever wanted to give it to us. I don't think that's going to be this, that easy this season. But, you know, in the past, we've gotten everybody from Sergio Rodriguez, who was actually very good for us, and Rudy Fernandez, just because teams are willing to sell to get money because they need money more than the Blazers do. We have the richest owner in the NBA. We should use it.
0: Well, thank you so much for taking the time, and hope to have you on again soon.
2: Thanks for having me. I appreciate it.
0: Thanks again to Haven for coming on. Next up, we have Jared Weiss. Jared is works for CLNS Radio in Boston. He's the Celtics locker room reporter, and he also hosts and executive produces the Garden Report, which is their postgame show. He and I talk about the success of the Celtics, specifically Jordan Crawford and where the team is going, as well as the general NBA, including Omar Ashik, possible trades as that's looking possible, and a series of other issues related to the league. Hope you enjoy it. Runs about an hour. So thank you so much to Jared for coming on.
1: Oh, it's always fun to be with Danny.
0: Before this year, I don't think either of us expected that you would be covering a team that would be this interesting.
1: Oh, I thought I was going to be covering the Clippers this year. I guess I got confused there. No, uh, the the Celtics are. What's funny is that uh, I've been trying to get people not to say that they're the, the that they're fourth place in the in the uh, Eastern Conference and first place in, in the division because. You know, it's it's that their first place in the in the division, and that's what was holding them up in that fourth spot. But now at twelve and fourteen, they have the fourth best record in the entire conference, which is one of the most shameful sentences uttered in NBA history. But it's it's amazing that they. I mean, I mean, twelve and fourteen's great for this team and not bad for the Eastern Conference right now. It's amazing, uh, and the Celtics look like a semi competent team that works hard. And on nights where the opponent gives them a chance, they're going to take advantage of it. And that's what happened in Minnesota, against Minnesota last night. Minnesota made a lot of boneheaded mistakes throughout the game. They, I think they missed four dunks and layups in that game, which was pretty amazing. Uh, but the Celtics are the kind of team that they, bount, they pounce on their opportunities. And they've been doing a good job at that this year. And that's without Rajon Rondo, of course. So it's... There's a very serious panic going on in Boston of, uh-oh, they might actually have a winning record this year and get nothing in the offseason.
0: They're in a really interesting situation also in terms of assessing whether they're buyers or sellers or somehow even being both, depending on how they're asked or on the league.
1: Oh, uh, Danny Ainge is furious at this. I mean, come on. Dan, Danny Ainge, he might have to sell one of his kids just to uh, just to be able to make this team bad enough. Although actually one of his kids is a director of player personnel so that'll that'll actually affect the team but I think age is gonna he's just gonna sell as much as he can uh he's gonna i think he has to sell Brandon bass because Brandon bass has earned a chance to go play for a contender he's been great this year and he's on a pretty good contract courtney lee's been good this year and very short spurts and he's on a pretty good contract he's he's making four and a half a year which is good for your third or fourth uh, you know guard. So, I mean, they've got plenty of guys that they can get rid of for basically cash outs and in future picks. Uh, There's going to be a team that's going to give up a first-round pick for Brandon Bass. It might be like the Thunder or something like that, like a team where it's like their first-round pick is kind of inconsequential in two years. But uh, he's going to get a first-round pick for one of those guys on his roster. The question is, is it Humphreys, is it Bass, is it Lee? And whether or not Rondo is going to get packaged in something more significant. And there was was the rumor today on Tuesday that it was Donnie Marshall, a former Celtics postgame show commentator, who now is with NBC Sports Network. And he said that he's being told by his sources, as he regrettably uh, called them, that Rondo is almost guaranteed to be traded to Sacramento. So unless Sacramento's trading Cousins, I can't imagine Rondo getting traded there, or unless the Kings are going to give up their next two first-round picks, and then that might make sense.
0: Rondo's an interest. oh God, that, that, that combination of teams with Rondo and Gay and Cousins would be really weird, and also the possibility, <laughs> considering how well Isaiah Thomas has played, would be, would be really—wow, that's, that's interesting to, to even conceive of how that team would work.
1: Well, I, Thomas, he's really good, but come on, he's a six man. He's hes not a starting NBA center. He's too tiny. And he's, I mean, he, he can pass pretty well, but he's kind of in that Monte Ellis mold of, guys that you just wanna make a bunch of scoring plays for you as much as they can in their limited amount of minutes. I don't want Isaiah Thomas playing thirty five minutes as my point guard for me. But then again, that's what I was saying about Jordan Crawford two months ago and now look where that's gotten the Celtics. So you can never say never with a point guard in the NBA. But if they can put together a team where Isaiah Thomas is a six man behind Rajon Rondo, that's that's a really good team.
0: The Jordan Crawford situation has been so weird for me because the end of last season from January to March I was actually living in DC covering and covering the Wizards full time and to see what he has become less than a year later is just mind blowing.
1: Well, I mean I want to I want to know what you saw there because I know you saw after he left. So I'm sure I'm sure there were people talking about Crawford off the record at the very least. But when I talked to him when he got here to Boston, he did not want to talk about Washington. He was pissed off about Washington. He seemed to kind of hate every everything about Washington. Now, let let's get it straight. A lot of guys are, were saying that when they were getting when they were getting shown the door in Washington over the past couple of years, and credit the Wizards for the way that they got rid of all those bad seeds there. And Jordan Crawford, he, really, last year he seemed like a bad seed. I mean, he was awful with the media. I think I think over the offseason they uh, the Celtics brass probably sat him down and said listen you got to be you got to be likable like you're going to be playing this year you got to be somewhat likable because last year he like he, you would ask him a question and he would like look away and be like that's a bad question and then he would just like and that was it so this year he's actually talking a little bit he's still a little weird and uh and kind of a little standoffish sometimes but he at least is kind of he's really embraced the fact that he's now a guy that people are interested in that people are talking about and looking to as one of the go-to players on the team. And there's not like, I can't give you like a logical explanation for it other than that Brad Stevens, I've asked Brad Stevens about it a couple times and Stevens has pretty much said every single time, listen, I was in college. I don't know what was going on with Jordan Crawford before. All I know is I saw Jordan Crawford destroy my team uh, or destroy the team that uh, before me in, in I think it was a Sweet 16 a couple of years back and Crawford had like 40 points in that game it was unreal I think he had like a half court shot at the buzzer in that game uh, but you know, Crawford is is, is good, it's like a he's kind of like the guy that you want to just carry your team if you got nothing going on and you're not a good team and you just need a guy that's going to carry you for a couple minutes and that's what he does. So Stevens said that it was kind of a blank slate with Crawford, and it was just a matter of going in there, letting Crawford show him what he can do, and Crawford this year has just decided he's going to be a balanced player. He's gonna, He still jumps in the air once a game looking for a pass and usually throws it away, but he's kind of a more controlled and more balanced player at this point of his career.
0: And that makes sense in the context of what happened with Washington. So from my eyes, and I'm not speaking from a position of intense knowledge, though I was around it a little bit, there's always a challenge with players, and I know you've seen this in Boston, when their demeanor and flaws on the court are also kind of shown off the court. And so what that means is that for media members, it creates an easy narrative. And that can go in the positive direction with a guy, let's say, like Manu Ginobili. Manu Ginobili is amazing with the media, he's a really nice guy, and he plays unselfishly on the court, he's fun to watch. So you get a lot of glowing stories when people write about the Spurs about Manu Ginobili. That can run in the reverse. Another example of that, to me, has been Andres Biedrens when he was on the Warriors, is that he was a guy who was not very available, and when his game went south, mm-hmm. I, I think that, that as media members, as you and I both are and have been for a while now, that especially the more entrenched people, they, you, you kind of develop in some ways a personal relationship with the team and the players involved. And as much as it shouldn't be true, there I'm sure for a lot of people there is a part of them that hesitates to write negative things about guys they like more that, and a hesitation that does not exist when they have a less positive relationship or when they have that
1: feedback loop. Well it's ridiculous to try to pretend like there's like, like we don't get subjective sometimes when we're analyzing guys. Now there's a big difference between when you're just having a quick, like when you're shooting off a tweet about someone instantaneously versus sitting down and writing an article where you're thinking about it. Now, when I, when I have to rip a guy that I like, like, like I like personally because whether I have a good relationship with him personally in the locker room, or I just see him as a good as a good guy in the locker room, or even off the court, like in the community, whatever. I if I have to say something bad about him, I feel kind of like a little bit of like a pull against it in my heart. But you still, we're all professionals, or for the most part, we're professionals, and we we just it's kind of a matter of just getting over it and fighting that instinct to basically do what you have to do because you have to talk about reality. And the bottom line is I was really, really hard on Jordan Crawford last year because the way he acted in the locker room was kind of the way he acted on the court. I gave him credit last year for the way he hustled on defense. I didn't think he played good defense, and I ripped him, sometimes a little unfairly, or I wouldn't say unfairly, but a little bit too frequently about his a lot of the mistakes he was making on defense. He seemed a little bit clueless, uh, but the but you, you give him credit for the fact that he was hustling. Now a lot of fans are probably going to go out there and they're just going to say, "Hey, he sucks at defense. He's clearly a jackass on uh, you know, off the court and all that kind of stuff. I hate him." But there were some merits to his game. He did he did step up for for the team when they needed him to. But the guy that he was last year is, is just so different from the guy he is this year because the way he's acting on the court is also matching the way he's, he's acting in the locker room. And Jordan Crawford is one of those guys that he pretty much acts the same both on and off the court. He's real, and he takes pride in that. He's talk, I think he talked about that before, about how he, he wants to be authentic or he says, like, I want to be 100% real and all that stuff. So you know there, there's some guys where you can't really judge them. Like it's you can't really apply the way they are in the locker room to the way they are, are on the court, but it tends to be that the guys that match it on both sides tend to be the most successful.
0: Yeah, I'd agree with that. And for me, the the one that made that transition kind of to see to see my role as a writer was actually David Lee, and really? he's a guy he's a guy who off court super nice guy. He's one he's one of the like one of the nicest people i I've, I've dealt with on the team, but since he was on the Knicks watching him on the court has infuriated me because he plays no defense mm. and and so it was it was useful in that sense but yeah i mean with Crawford that happened but at the same time as i think that there's always a difference with guys who it doesn't feel like they're maximizing their physical potential and i think that was the other part with him that was hard in washington that is a lot better in boston is that and boston now is that he he, it always looked like he could be so much better than he was when he was with the Wizards. And in some ways, what this year is confirming is that that was always true. And that's nice, and I'm, hap- I'm overwhelmingly overwhelmingly happy for his success. But that I think that both in terms of fans and the media, and probably coaching staffs, that feeling that you're not maximizing what you can do also probably makes the criticism have a sharper edge.
1: Well, that's the number one thing for me as a six-foot white uh, white power forward that can't do the things that a lot of these guys can do, partly because of their gifts and mostly because of their work ethic and their talent. But when I look at a guy that clearly is underachieving, that's coasting, that isn't trying to be great, it pisses me off because I look at him and say, I wish I could be – giving a hundred percent and be doing what you're doing right now and that's what every fan thinks and that's what I what I assume most other reporters are thinking as well because we're people that love ba- if you're a basketball reporter that means you love basketball so much that you decided to dedicate your career to it and your life to it which is a little bit insane when I think about it but it's it's awesome and it's fun but you looked at Jordan Crawford and for a while you looked at him and you thought that he was just kind of trying to have his fun in the NBA and just try to make the most out of himself while he had his limited shot. I don't know if it's because he thought that he was going to have a short run in the NBA and he figured, hey, I'm just going to do it my way. Or maybe he just thought, this is what's worked for me my entire life and I'm going to keep doing it. Maybe he's had a lot of enablers along the way that told him, yeah, just keep shooting and shooting and shooting. You don't have to develop the rest of those skills. You just try to score 80 points a night and you'll be awesome. The, The bottom line for Crawford is that he's playing pretty much the same way that he or he's in the same situation that he was in when he was with the Wizards he's on a team that was supposed to have low expectations that didn't really have much veteran leadership and he was put in a position where he was going to be making a lot of plays now last year when he came to the Celtics his role was just to back up Rajon Ronda or actually I'm sorry Ronda was gone at that point back up Avery Bradley, back up Courtney Lee for a little while, although that that whole rotation kind of switched up a lot. But his job was basically to come in there for a few minutes, play defense, and take the shots when they came to him. And that is just not Jordan Crawford's game. Now this year, Crawford's handling the ball. He is one of the highest usage rates on the team. He's running the point. He's running – he's not just running the point. He's running – Really, the team, I mean, he's very active on the uh, perimeter defensively. He's not necessarily a very good defender. He doesn't, read, he doesn't read plays very well. He gets caught in trouble a lot, but he works his butt off, as he always has, at least since I've started watching him. And he he's playing with free reign, but he's kind of figured out how to use that to his advantage to be a guy that gets to dominate the ball in the game like he wants to, but be productive and not be a scapegoat for a change.
0: Do you think that at this point he's physically and mentally ready to take a smaller role on a better team, whether that be the Celtics or if he got moved somewhere that has more kind of more pieces that would be in front of him in line?
1: You mean Miami, of course. Well, one he starts in Miami. That's the big thing for him. Is there's a lot of there's a lot of good teams right now that would like to trade for him, and because he, cause he's not making much money and he's at the he's about to be a free agent, so. A lot of teams can get him now and not have to commit to him long-term. There's a lot of teams that would try to trade for him, and he'd be coming off the bench. He may be, he wouldn't have as much responsibility, as much fun and freeway as he has right now. But if he's going to Miami, he's he's not going to have, obviously, what he has in Boston, but he's going to be starting for the most part. I don't think Norris Cole is going to be starting over him, and I think if they're getting him, that means that they don't want Mario Chalmers to be the starter anymore. They want him to be kind of a matchup-based guy. And as much as I like Mario Chalmers at times, he hasn't ended up being consistent enough to be a starting point guard for the most part. I see Miami as an ideal situation for Crawford. I have no idea how he's going to handle a possible lack of uh, playing time. But I I think he wants to win. Based on what we're seeing this year, the idea that he'd want to be on a bad team where he could just take 80 shots a game, that's been thrown out the window he seems like a guy that wants to win. He wants to do it. He wants to do it his way as much as possible, but he wants to win. So, I I think he would relish the opportunity to be in a winning environment and in, in, in a winning situation.
0: If Rondo was on this team, if they were both on the Celtics for the rest of this season, how do you think that would work out between the two of them?
1: That's so unfair that we're saying if they were both on this team for the rest of the season. Like they're both on the roster. It's not like that's a remote possibility. I mean, it sure seems it sure seems like one of those guys is going to get traded. But it is funny how we're looking at it like that. Now Crawford's not going to be starting anymore. Crawford, Crawford's going to get into that situation like we were just talking about. Except this time he's not on a uh, he's not on a title front runner or front runner. He's on a team that may much of the chagrin of ownership and the management end up in the playoffs. It's it's just it's you don't really know. Nobody knows what's going on in Crawford's head. I don't I don't think even he knows what's going on in his head. There's just there's not really a way to get a read on what he wants and what he's trying to do. I, I think for him, as long as he's playing well somewhere, he's going to get paid. You know, if he keeps up what he's doing right now, he's going to be he's going to get a pretty good contract next year. I mean, he might get even 6 million a year next year. I mean, he thinks he probably should be getting 12 to 14 million. Realistically, he's got a shot at getting maybe 6 million next year, which is huge considering that he was Maybe lucky to even get a multi-year deal based on what he was doing last year. So I, I think he'd be happy to play behind Rondo and, and Bradley as long as he's still getting about 25 to 30 minutes a game. And that does give you, – you know that he wants to be shooting more than he is right now. So it does give him the opportunity to kind of go back into that gunner mode.
0: And the interesting thing we're talking about Boston's place in the Eastern Conference is that – there are enough teams that want to win in the Eastern Conference to push a team like Boston down, but Boston has been playing well enough that it's not entirely sure that that's what's going to happen anyway.
1: I mean, nobody knows what's going to happen when Rondo comes back, because no one knows how good is Rondo going to be right, right away. I mean, you could look at uh, Kobe as a nice little comparison. Kobe had a rough first game, but he's kind of steadily over the last uh, last few games gotten – closer to being, you know, a 25-point score. With Rondo, you're assuming that he's going to have maybe a week where he's not playing that great, and then before you know it, he's averaging 12 assists a game. And (laughs) you you add what Rajon Rondo does to an offense that, frankly, is struggling to move the ball. I mean, as as much as we're uh, praising Jordan Crawford right now, I feel like a lot of his plays are lucky a lot of them are on broken plays, and a lot of it is just Solinger take, uh, taking up so much of the attention from the uh, defense and allowing Crawford to get in the space and make a good pass. And Crawford's been making good passes. Uh, but when you put Rondo in the mix, it changes everything. Like it's You can't even really conceptualize how different this team is going to be with Rondo at the helm. Does that mean they're just going to—the difference is, is it going to be that they're going to be dramatically better? Or are they going to change their system up? Because their system, offensively, is designed to not have a point guard, to not have a guy that's going to dribble around and then find a guy open in the corner or something like that. I mean, right now they're doing a lot of kind of just like typical horn sets where they're having, you know, two bigs on the foul lines, two shooters in the corners, and then the bigs are coming up. They're setting cross screens for each other, back screens for the point guard, and then guys are rotating around. It's kind of like a, you know, it's kind of a very rigid. I wouldn't say kind of like a, you know, like high pressure offense. It's just kind of an offense where there's lots of movement. It's not a motion offense either. It's just a lot of guys kind of moving in different directions. And then eventually amidst the confusion, an open three point shot occurs or an open 10 foot shot occurs. And with Rondo, the Celtics run kind of a very tight knit offense where guys are running very tight pick and rolls everyone's in their spot standing around waiting for him to hit them with the pass. So how Stevens adopts Rondo into this uh, into this year's offense is going to be the biggest question.
0: And that also could fit together with the idea of potentially moving Rondo either before or very early on in his process of coming back, because that adjustment period, as we've seen with, with players in various points in their career, can be really awkward, and depending on how how other teams interpret that they could be like oh maybe he's further along further away from being ready and so it could for a certain group of people limit his value and so if you're you're, it's a very interesting risk proposition in terms of how teams interpret what would come of that
1: yeah well I mean Rondo's trade value isn't going to be determined based on how he plays out the gate it's going to be determined by basically when he comes out does he look like he can still move. It's fine if he can't hit a shot, if he's not in sync with his passing. People are just going to be looking at it to see whether he can still move. Can he still cut? Can he still stop, which is a huge part of his game, and stop dribbling and stuff like that? As long as they can see that he can physically still move, no GM in the league is going to be like, oh, well, Rondo can't do this and that anymore. And also, Rondo apparently has been shooting lights out from three-point range of practice lately. But, you know, Dwight Howard shoots 80% from the free throw line in practice, so who knows what the value is in that. But apparently Rondo has made very, very uh, significant improvement on his three-point shot uh, during his rehab. So that'll be, uh, it'll be fascinating to see whether they just kind of use him as like a Mario Chalmers type and they just park him out on the three-point line and have him play defense. But I, I'm against training Rajon Rondo. I don't, I don't see what the point of it is, besides if you think you can get some significant return for him. But they don't ha- they don't need to trade him. He's not even on his walk here yet. I mean, maybe next year. But they don't need to trade him right now, unless they're unless they want to tank and they want to get Andrew Wiggins or Jabari Parker, and they think the only way they can do that is to get rid of Rondo. And they think we'd rather get rid of Rondo and get one of those top three picks next year than keep him and get like a you know ninth or tenth pick in the draft or even out of the lottery at the way things are going right now.
0: Did you watch this college basketball season at all with the eye of, oh, we might have, a, like, the Celtics might have a top pick and then just kind of keep that mindset and then have trouble adjusting with what's happened?
1: Yeah, well, it was the start of the season. It was the it was at Tournament in Chicago. Is that the, is that the Coaches vs. Cancer Classic? I can't remember.
0: I think that was the Champions Classic. Okay,
1: yeah. So everyone in Boston, that was, like, front-page news, was getting to see Wiggins and Parker and Randall. And Embiid, uh, and and all those guys play. And also, Embiid was kind of off the radar at that point. Now he's been so huge this year that he's uh, kind of bolted into that top three or four there. Uh, but, I mean, it was amazing. It's literally a weekend tournament where you get to watch, like, the four best players in college basketball, uh, Sans, Marcus Smart, go at it. It was, it was really awesome. And I think, oh, and, and uh, Gordon as well, everybody came out of that thinking, oh, we've been talking about the wrong guy. It's Jabari Parker. That's a great player. I mean, the fact is, part. Parker has always been compared to Melo, and Wiggins has always been compared to T-Mac. Everyone would rather have T-Mac than Melo, especially with what's happening in New York right now. I I don't think a ton of that changed, really. I I still think Wiggins is probably the number one for most people. But the thing is, is with the Celtics winning now, there's a lot of people that are just excited, and they love Brad Stevens to the point that they're like, hey, we just want to see Brad Stevens win because he's he's the new messiah in Boston. And then the other half of the people are like, what's wrong with you guys? You're, you're supposed to be losing. We need to get Wiggins. We need to get Parker. And, you know, I put, like, polls up on the Garden Report, my post-game show on Celtics' blog and CLNS Radio all the time, shameless self-promotion. And we put up polls all the time kind of asking about which, like, like talking about Chris Humphries playing well last night. It's like, should Chris Humphreys be playing well or should he trade him? And then, like, one of the options will be get rid of him because we need Andrew Wiggins and we can't be good. And that'll always be like the highest one, like every single time. And that's like either the highest or the second highest every single time. It's like Andrew Wiggins' watch never ends here. People right now are swept up in the fact that the Celtics are in the first place in the division. They're playing pretty decent basketball. But there's going to be a certain point in the season where people are going to say, uh-oh, it might be too late for this team to tank and get a top five pick. They're in trouble now because they're going to be good this year. But then next year, they're going to just be a decent team that missed out on the chance to add a superstar that would make them a title contender.
0: Do you feel like Boston has a chance to get high-level free agents if they had cap space for it? Let's say a guy like Kevin Love or a guy like LaMarcus Aldridge, Like if they were an unrestricted free agent, do you feel like Boston has a chance to get one of those guys to come?
1: Well, those are two guys that have been in northern small market cities for their entire career. So those are two very interesting ones because it's not for the idea of being in a cold northern city that doesn't have an amazing kind of like nightlife and culture. Although Boston has Boston's a little bit underrated for the nightlife and culture aspect, but it's not San Francisco. It's not New York. It's not Chicago. It's not Seattle, even maybe pretty close to Seattle. So. It's a de- it's, not like, it's not like Minnesota or Portland where it's really difficult to bring in a marquee free agent. It's still got some aspects of the city that will make it appealing. It's close enough to New York that you can get down in New York pretty quickly and have a fun night. They haven't really made a great – like a major free agent signing in a long time in Boston. Mostly it's because they haven't needed to. They haven't really been in the position where they've had a ton of cap space and needed to go out and sign somebody. Uh, it's probably been about probably eight years since that happens. Uh, I'm trying to even remember the, like the last time they made like a pretty big free agent signing. So it's, there's not much precedent in modern history for the, for this question, but the reputation of the coaching staff right now is already really strong. And then management and ownership and facilities has always been very, very strong. So that's always been able to be a pull to get guys to come here. But When you're talking about Kevin Love, who has a chance to go back to L.A. where he was in college, and I'm sure he'd be a lot happier in than Minnesota or Oregon. And then LaMarcus Aldridge, who I I don't remember his background. I think he's from – I know he played at Texas. I don't remember where he grew up. I feel like he's from the DMV or something like that. But he's been in Portland for his entire career. And I know Portland has amazing food trucks, but that's about all they have besides, like, Fred Armisen.
0: In new era of free agency, it's not about being in the conversation as much as it is being number one. And that's that's the really fascinating part in terms of free agency. But Boston has so many assets beyond that that they can they can get a, a quality player in there a series of different ways, like they did with Kevin Garnett and Ray Allen.
1: By the way, I checked. Uh, LaMarcus is from Dallas. So DMV Dallas. I was close with the D there, at least. So, yeah, I mean, I'm sure Dallas would love to get LaMarcus Aldridge to replace Dirk in the uh, in a year, but yeah, the Celtics they don't have Al Jefferson right now. They have Jared uh, Jared Sullinger, who isn't quite at the same level that Al Jefferson was as a trade chip uh, when they made that move for KG. But he is he is close. Uh, it's it's kind of been it's kind of been pretty surprising, and it's been the, one of the major storylines for the Celtics this season is how quickly Jared Sollinger has improved, and now Jared Solinger is actually kind of turning into the player that he was supposed to be after his freshman year in college, or where he was projected to be a top five pick. If by the trade deadline, Jared Solinger is averaging fifteen and nine the way Jefferson was in oh seven, they have him, they have you know they have a couple other guys. Avery Bradley, I would say, has the same level of potential that Gerald Green had back then. And don't forget when Gerald Green was traded to the Timberwolves, I was actually really upset they traded him because he was a pretty high value prospect at that point. He was scoring twenty points a game for the team. I mean, he was he was he was a pretty good potential scorer, and then things kind of fell apart for him. But that was he was the second major asset in that trade. Uh, but you know they've got Avery Bradley that they can move if they have to. They don't want to, but they could. And don't forget he is a free agent and he's looking at possibly seven eight million dollars a year in the free agent market. So they have the assets and they have plenty of first round draft picks that are even more valuable than they were six years ago that they could make a trade for one of these marquee stars kevin love is obviously one of the main guys that comes to mind there because of all the you know all the all the rumors swirling around him sure uh, but also that the minnesota front office would be pretty inclined to get back a guy like jared solinger and get all those first round picks because they're they've kind of they've been in that same no man's land for a while now where they've been picking kind of towards the bottom of the top 10 and they haven't made a ton of great draft picks there
0: and also the Celtics could go in the position of going after a guy who's already under contract, but for whatever reason there, there isn't a good fit where they are. You know, I'm not saying he's there right now, but like a situation that parallels what Eric Gordon and what happened with him in New Orleans in the sense that the team had control over him, they signed him, but they would be willing to move him if the right pieces came. I'm not saying Eric Gordon to the Celtics. I'm saying a piece like that cuz those guys come around every so often in the league right now and if you if you think you can get talent out of it if you can get more production out of a guy than they're getting in their current situation then you could strike while you can strike while the iron is hot and get a good player like New Orleans actually did with Ryan Anderson they got him just kind of they they identified him correctly at the right time and got him without giving up really anything
1: Well, the Celtics, I think, were rumored at the beginning of the year. It looked like it was a false rumor, but uh, they were talking about uh, Eric Gordon as a possible trade target. Uh, I mean, New Orleans, they could use a small forward. Jeff Green makes sense for that team. I don't think they want to commit to Jeff Green, but just as far as personnel is concerned, he seems like he'd be a bit of a fit there. And it makes sense for them to trade Eric Gordon, considering that they just made what I think is a pretty bad commitment to Tyreek Evans. And what I thought was a pretty good trade getting Drew Holiday, but Eric Gordon, he's got enough talent that he's one of those guys that if you think he's going to stay there and he's going to be healthy, he's talented enough that you acquire him regardless of how he fits into your roster and you make your roster fit around him. But Eric Gordon, the health has become pretty much a red flag for him. And I don't really see him getting moved unless it's like a really low take just because he's had – the injury issues just look like he's kind of a crapshoot of whether or not he's going to actually have an NBA career at this point.
0: If you were the DM of the Celtics, are, is there anybody on this that you consider untradeable?
1: I mean, Solinger is, is as close to untradeable as it gets on this team. You still trade him if you can get a great player in return. Like, you trade him if you can get Kevin Love on a, on a, a contract extension. I mean, sure. Because... I don't know how NBA GMs look at this, but I always look at it that if you can get an, like an already established player that's, let's say, less than four years older than your current guy, I would always make that trade. I think a, a longevity plays a huge factor in trades that teams want to get four years younger if they can. I think four years is probably that cutoff point for me. Kevin Love is, I think, about three or four years older than Solinger, so that would, that would fit pretty perfectly. If they could get a guy like Ke- – if they could get Kevin Love, basically. I, I think Kevin Love is a guy you look at. If they could trade Jared Solinger for Kevin Love, I would do that trade, and I'm sure Danny Ainge would do that trade, as long as Kevin's going to sign a contract extension. But there there isn't any other – like, there's no reason to cash out on Jared Solinger. His peak is very, very high. He's he's a hardworking player. He's got a very high basketball IQ. And if – a huge if, like if in like 82 font. He can lose 30 pounds. He could. Like, he has enough weight on him that he could lose 60 pounds even. But if he could just lose 30 and just become a bit of an athlete the way that Kevin Love did, that changes so many aspects of this game. That it makes him so much more effective as a post player. I mean, it just opens up so many opportunities for him to be good. But he's now a, he's a mediocre three-point shooter, but he had a very clutch three-pointer to win it last night. He's hit some big threes so far for this team he's only in he hasn't even played 82 games in his career yet he's already a power a good low post player that can shoot the three so that's that's pretty huge progress right there. Jared Solander is looking that looking at the, the possibility of being a Kevin Love type player and those guys are extremely rare and they're extremely coveted in the, in the league right now because the league is obsessed with getting power forwards that can shoot. But usually, that comes at the at the consequence of not having a power forward that can rebound and score in the post. But Solinger and Love are one of the few guys that can do all three of those.
0: Do you have a concept at this point of what his defensive niche is? Like whether he should prime, whether he can guard centers, whether he's pretty much a power forward defensively.
1: Well, it was really fascinating. Was they had to run this gauntlet of centers a couple weeks ago, where they uh, they faced they hosted the Pacers and then they went to Houston. San Antonio, and one other team I'm forgetting off the top of my head who had a good center. I think it was they faced Memphis, but Gasol I think had just gotten hurt right before that game. Uh, but basically he destroyed Roy Hibbert. He like took Roy Hibbert out of the game. Uh, Dwight Howard didn't do anything in that Houston game. But that's because Houston obliterated the Celtics. And then he held his own and I think outscored and out-rebounded Tim Duncan, or maybe it was close in rebounds. But he went up against the three best centers in the league, or just about the three best centers in the league, and played very well against them. And that was shocking. I mean, it really was. It, it, and he, he's undersized, but he's great with leverage. He has, he has a lot of the qualities that an offensive, like a, like a, a guard would, like a left guard would in the NFL. Uh, he's he's really good with leverage. He gets low center of gravity, and he pushes up on under guys' ribs and in their you know kind of like in their the like lower torso area. So if a guy's seven foot two over him, he's gonna shove him off the block before the catch. He's gonna fight him tooth and nail on the ground, and he makes it a ground game. And that's what makes him effective is that he knows he can't get up in the air and contest them. And these are, these are all, all three of these guys are going to get way over him if it's an air game. But what he does is he keeps them on the ground. He doesn't foul very much. I mean, his fouling was a huge problem for for him last year. He, uh, I think he led the league in fouls per game and he only played like 30 minutes, 30 games or so. Uh, But this year the fouls have been more under control. He still gets in foul trouble sometimes, but He's generally proven himself to be able to handle any power player in the league. And it's just a matter I mean, guys are gonna learn how to score on him eventually, but he's smart enough to kind of counter move any sort of adjustment that they're gonna make on him.
0: What I find interesting about Sollinger is that he's the type of piece that a good coach can do a lot with, and mm-hmm. the Celtics are lucky enough to have a really good coach. So you can you can do things offensively and defensively with him that there are not many guys in the league who physically fizic- at the big man positions, particularly who physically can do that. And that makes him a different asset in the sense that I'm sure there are some teams that go, Oh, we could do so much with him and the Celtics being one of those, but they already have him, And th- that goes back to me to the inter- the most interesting dynamic with this team. And you talked about it with Rondo is that Ainge is coming from a position of leverage in the sense that they have no sense of urgency to trade any of the guys that they have so they can kind of just wait and see how things work out. Though, obviously, I think if your goal is to get worse, some of the guys they have, they should move.
1: Listen, Danny Ainge obviously wants that top draft pick. That's probably his number one goal this offseason is that top draft pick. It doesn't have to happen. I mean, like it's, it's all like he has to have a top five draft pick. People like... Everyone looking at the Celtics right now is looking at this team and saying, at least coming into the league, and it's still the sentiment until they start beating Miami every single game, is this team is a bad team. They're not contending for the title. That means they have to get a bad draft pick. And there's been – I've seen a lot of articles this offseason about how you don't want to be stuck in NBA no-man's land. It's the worst place in the league. But you know what? There's a lot of teams that have built – through the, be- the end of the top 10 or you know, the late lottery because they made great draft picks there in the late lottery. Now Danny Ainge has been pretty successful in the draft in the kind of like the mid to late first round for, for the most part. He started taking some gambles at the end of the first round with guys like Jawan Johnson and J.R. Giddens. Those failed pretty miserably. But generally all of his draft picks in the middle of the first round have been very good. Like Jefferson, Gerald Green was a good draft pick for a while. I mean, he's made a lot of good draft picks. So, the question is: Is Danny confident enough in his staff and his scouting staff and all that that he would be okay with having like the thirteenth pick in the draft and being able to ensure that Jared Solinger turns into a like an all star power for. Because in that case, you're getting an all star. You're guaranteeing yourself an all star because they know what they have in Jared Solinger. Now, if they trade him away or if they destroy this team, you might be doing severe harm to the to the uh, development of Jared Solinger. or or Avery Bradley or whatever other player we're talking about here. People think that tanking means that you're just losing games and that's it and you get your draft pick. But it does, you have guys on the roster, guys that you're stuck with. It's not like Jared Solinger's going anywhere unless they trade him. Like, you're going to have to play most of these guys next year and you're heavily invested and you're spending tons of money right now to try to develop them. So it's kind of a waste if you're tanking as hard as you can and making this team terrible and all that. There's a lot of value in trying to be in the middle of the pack because it develops the value you already have on board.
0: Speaking of mid first round picks, how do you feel about Kelly Olenek so far?
1: Uh, It it hasn't gone very well for him. His reputation got overblown because he had a great summer league. The cautionary tale I've been telling every single time I'm asked this question is the Celtics had a player named Justin Reed and you're a real NBA nerd if you remember that player and you're not from Boston uh, he was like a six foot eight swingman, uh, defensive focused, like an Alfaruka Minu kind of player. And I was about, I'd say, 12 years old when I watched him in the Summer League. I, I, it, this was back when the Summer League was at UMass Boston. Uh, so you got to go for like $8 a game in Boston and watch all these guys play. It was awesome. And Reed was averaging like 18 points a game. He was on fire. And I kept telling my dad, who was a season ticket holder for like 40 years, Justin Reed's going to be the starting center or small forward for this team this year. Sure enough, Justin Reed played like four games in his NBA career, and I never saw him again. And he was amazing in the Summer League. He was like one of I think he was like on the like the Summer League All-Star team and everything. He was great. And people did the same exact thing with Kelly Olynyk. They looked at him scoring on six foot eight, like you know, scoring like Ben Hansborough and stuff like that, and saying, Hey, this guy's gonna be an amazing high post player. And he had a good game against Andre Drummond, which started to kind of legitimize that talk. But the thing is, is the physicality on the NBA level is so much bigger than the college level. And it's still so much bigger than the summer league level and the D league level. It's like playing in those leagues can't even prepare you for what you're going to deal with when you get to the NBA. And Kelly has been pushed around so much this year. Guys have been running around him. He's shown that he still has so much to learn about playing defense in the NBA, and he's hustling. I mean, he, he made three key saves at the end of the game last night that probably, probably wouldn't have won the game without it, and he had two wide-open threes that were very clutch to put the team up. So, you know, he's making some plays, but overall, he's a guy that just isn't physically ready to be successful in the NBA, and it's going to take him a while.
0: I think you've raised a good point with Summer League, and I think it, I think it applies more to big men because the difference that, that gets lost in the shuffle a lot in, the, in, in terms of big men is that the NBA guys are, they're, not only are they bigger and faster, which is important, but the guys who actually get minutes in the pros, like in real games, are also a lot more skilled, experienced, and coached yeah, up. Yeah. You think about, you can't face a guy like Marcus right now in Summer League. They don't exist. You don't, there are no guys who make it. So the guys who play in Summer League who are really skilled generally have weaknesses in terms of size or athleticism that make other people who are closer look better. And so you get those. And also sometimes those guys have the perception gaps. And you get into, you know, guys who are like, oh, it even happens a little bit with guys like Ben Hansbro. It's like, oh, he's. Tyler's brother. He's probably going to be all right, and he's doing really well against him. But it's a really hard thing, and it's I, I've always found that with big men, with with guards, it happens too because there's a skill deficiency. But athleticism, the athleticism gap is a lot closer, I think, with those guys. And so you you know you have guys like Nate Robinson, who's a, a really talented athlete despite his height and everything else, <laughs> but he he can, if he wants to, he can defend well. And so you can see, you can see a little bit, I would say a fairer fight or a fairer way to evaluate for the one and the two, but the four and the five, it's just brutal.
1: I don't know. Do you have NBA TV on right now? Cause I'm watching NBA TV and Nate Robinson is doing a ping pong challenge against Reggie Miller. So it's funny you said Nate Robinson right now. Uh, I, I'm
0: not watching it right now, but I did watch that earlier.
1: You, I assume you just think about Nate Robinson at random times throughout the day to make yourself happy. Of course.
0: Well, yeah, I mean, except as a UCLA alum, the, uh, there's a little bit of a, there's a little bit of a college rivalry. But I covered him when he was on the Warriors, and he's he's a fascinating player. I've never really developed a particular sense of him that so many other people have. I think that he's a he's just a fun little piece, and I've always been intrigued to see what he could do on a legitimately good team. But he's so much fun on those kind of six to eight seeds of like kind of the, I don't know if you're familiar with it. I'm not super familiar with it with Gladwell, kind of the David strategies of, you know, you're facing a team that's better. So one of those ideas and the Warriors have done this with Steph Curry is just give the ball to this guy and he's either going to shoot you into it or shoot you out of it. And when you're a six seed, that's fantastic. And it makes for like that in that bull series, that was incredible.
1: Exactly. I mean, the the bull series was one of the most amazing shows that I can ever remember seeing in basketball because, I mean, part of it is just the whole the whole physical part, and the way he looks. But, you know, right now they're showing a replay of him rejecting LeBron from behind on the drive. It's like Nate Robinson is one of those guys that when he gets in the zone, he's like the most unstoppable player in basketball. I mean, it's, it's unbelievable. He he believes he can do absolutely anything when he decides to. And sometimes he, you know, kind of he, he returns to earth a little too hard and it knocks him out of the game. But he's one of those guys that has just a special gift of, just chippiness and uh, never ending self-confidence that makes him an effective player. And people, I think people uh, criticize him all the time for that, for, for kind of like the way that he acts, gets him in the trouble. And like, I don't mean like trouble, like in real life, like trouble, like in the game, like he'll get himself into a trap or something like that. But I can't imagine Nate Robinson staying in the NBA any other way than just playing with the amount of swag that he does.
0: And he's in he's in a place where he's his height is so limited, but he has so much other athletic talent. He's a he moves really well, he jumps insanely well, and it everything fits with him. His mentality is the only way that a player, even with his athletic gifts, could make it in the league. Mm. And so he does that. And I've always kind of wished that as in coming back to a former Celtic, that Gerald Green had some of that urgency. You know, a guy who who could throw down the highlight dunks when he wants. And Harrison Barnes has this too, but the idea that I would be a much better player if I tried to dominate every second I was on the floor.
1: Well, Gerald Green has all the same talent that Dave Robinson has. They're actually, they're actually pretty similar players. They both are very good ball handlers. They have amazing agility and stopping power and everything like that. They both have 45 inch vertical, probably even more than that, uh, verticals. The difference is Gerald's a foot taller but Nate's the only one that really brings it. And you're absolutely right. It's that Gerald plays with, like, he's always played his whole career with such a little confidence and such a little urgency. And it got to the point that he actually got ran out of the league. And I don't understand how guys can play like that to the point that they leave the league. Because, like, you can play like that thinking, oh, I'm secure, I'm going to have a long career. But then when all of a sudden you're getting cut and you're barely even making rosters, how does that not change for you? And it it changed for him. He had that stint at the Nets now all of a sudden he's doing it again with Phoenix after he didn't play for the Pacers at all last year. But Gerald Green seems to only like kind of show up in the NBA when he's pretty much on his last leg. And, uh, and he's he, it's, I don't know how he's still in the league, frankly, because he every time I watch him, he's either throwing down the windmill dunk or he's doing absolutely nothing
0: the best way that I know to explain it, having absolutely no ability to be an NBA athlete is the, is that some guys don't know necessarily what it takes to be a professional. And if whatever they're doing, which let's say it's, you know, it's 80% or 50% of what they could do gets them to a level of success that they are satisfied with. Then they just go, okay, that's good enough. And there's some guys who are wired where that's, that's enough for them, you know? And then, What they learn is that once the teams figure you out, that 50% isn't good enough anymore. You need to be upping it every year. And I think a guy like Paul George is an amazing example of how that can work, is just to to ramp it up and understand that I I need to be getting better every year in order to stay where I am and I need to be getting better at a higher rate than other guys are getting better to really thrive in the league.
1: Yeah. Cause like Nick Young is a great example of the, of the first player type of player you were talking about there. Or um, I'd say J.R. Smith is kind of like the, the extreme there where J.R. Smith is such a talent that he still puts up huge numbers and is still very uh, effective, but he's still just a gunner. And that's all he ever contributes to the team. Now, Paul George, he he's i mean he's like the most he's the most talented all around player besides lebron in the league i mean kevin durant's pretty close but he is he's like he's great at every single facet of the game and that's not a natural thing that's a work thing like that's that's like a thing that you earn yourself nobody ever comes into the league being able to do every single component of the game being able to defend defend in the perimeter of the post be able to pass be able to post up, be able to score, be able to shoot, all he does every single thing you can imagine. And LeBron's really the only other player, and I guess Durant too, that you think of that can do those things. And that comes from just like thinking like J.R. Smith, I think he approaches basketball thinking, Alright, I got scoring down. Now I keep scoring even more while Paul George says, Alright, I got scoring down. I'm gonna become a great passer and average seven assists a game. And that's why Paul George now is looking at probably the first place in the MVP race at this point of the season, although he's got really heavy competition. But Paul George is a guy that every single year has gotten dramatically better at multiple things in his game, and that's just something that comes from work.
0: But what's crazy about the whole thing is that I would still take a chance on a lot of those guys with physical talent because that's the only thing that's really hard to get better. And I think that that also physical talent is – often conflated in the NBA with just running and jumping, whereas a guy like Kevin Love has immense physical talent. It's just in very unusual ways, like his crazy outlet passes. But that, I mean, that's somewhat with work, but he's, I've been watching Kevin for longer than almost anybody because he, because of the connection with UCLA and because his dad and everything else. And he's a freak, but he's a freak in a very different way than J.R. Smith is a freak.
1: Well, I I think Kevin's more of a mental freak, though. I mean, Kevin just has one of the highest IQs in all of basketball. It manifests in physical ways. I mean, the way that he because I mean, being an athlete isn't just being able to jump over people. It's about being able to outmuscle people. It's about it's it's a lot of it's mental. Being a great athlete, a lot of it is just knowing. Like Chris Paul is a great athlete. He doesn't have an exceptional uh, exceptional vertical. He doesn't blow by people like in dead you know in dead sprint races, but he's so quick and he knows how to use his quickness like he he recognizes when someone's off balance and then he explodes past them with a quick little step you now and that's athleticism there it doesn't get recognized very well but that's that's the most that's more effective than Gerald Green trying to jump over America now Kevin Love what he does is he uses his body to leverage himself into position position that makes him extremely effective. Now, that's a that's a very different type of athleticism, but it's still using your physical traits to be able to be effective. And he does it better than anybody, just about anybody else in the league.
0: Agreed on all counts. The other thing with Love that I always think about is, I think it was when, when he was in college, I saw him shooting just with a wrist flick, not like the things that you would see at halftime of games. I would see him just popping shots from his own free throw line and making them with some regularity. And I've never seen anything like that.
1: Well, he's a powerful dude. It's, it's kind of scary. Like when you really think about how powerful he is and the things that he does with such ease that for like other players around, like just any other player at his position in the league would be like a monumental achievement. It's unbelievable the way he holds, he he holds off people with one hand and then like gets the rebound and then puts it back up with the other hand, all that kind of stuff that's like normal stuff for him but those are incredible plays for everybody else in the league and that's what makes him so great is he just you know you're a great player when a routine play for you is an exceptional play for anybody else
0: and LeBron does stuff like that all the time, as for sure. But I think you can appreciate it at, at guys who are in different parts of the game at different phases. I think Marcus Sewell for me is the guy who who's does that a lot. Like, you see something in the way he moves and the way that he interacts on defense. It's effort, but it's just it's incredible to watch.
1: Yeah, well, Marcus Sewell is a great example of a guy that his athleticism is ninety nine percent mental because he he is as plotting a center as it gets in the league. Right? I mean, like. He, he takes free throws for jump shots from like 20 feet out. He, he never leaves his feet ever. And with him, it's all about just like reading the space, reading the player and knowing when to move because he's got a, he needs to, he needs to make sure that every single movement he makes is as, is as useful as possible because he's so damn slow. And, and he's so, and he's so big. He can't like, you well, know, with him, he can't just like change. It's like turning the Titanic with him He's a huge dude. And he's not very quick. So for him, he's just got to make the right choice on every time he even moves his feet. And he's, because, he's, he's part of this verticality revolution. He doesn't go straight up in the air very much. He usually just stays on the ground and just goes straight up with his hands. And he gets himself in a position where he doesn't need to leave his feet. And he doesn't really get enough credit for how he does that. But you know, everyone gives Roy Hibbert all this credit for the whole verticality thing. Because Roy Hibbert, he just flies in there and then jumps up at the perf- at the last second, straight up. But Marcus Sewell, he never really has to fly in there. He always puts himself in the right spot so that he can just stand up with his hand straight up and not even need to risk the foul.
0: So we're about sixty days from the trade deadline, and I was wondering, you can include Celtics or not Celtics. What players are you most intrigued by potentially changing addresses?
1: I mean, Oshik's an easy one just because of you know the player that he is. And the impact that he's going to make on whatever team goes to him. I mean, just look at the impact he made on Houston last year. I mean, Houston they they had a really good season, but I didn't. I still don't think that team last year was that good. They had like a couple of good pieces, but it was really Oshik holding that whole thing together there. And if it weren't for him, I don't think they would have even been a playoff team. It would because I think he makes James, He made James Harden look good. I mean, James Harden for every for everything that everyone loves about him, he hasn't played a lick of defense in his whole life. And he, he does take a lot of bad shots. I mean, he makes a lot of them, too. But for being such a, a super efficient player and having that reputation, James Harden, I see, take just about as many bad shots as any other uh, scorer out there in the league. So for me, I'm looking to see where Oshik goes, and I can't imagine he's going to a contender. I just I don't see how another contender could even fit him in, and I just can't imagine Houston sending him to another contender because he's a near all-star player that is being wasted away in Houston. And if you put him on any good team that at least needs him, and even if they don't really need him, but just any good team, he's going to instantly turn that team into a favorite to win it.
0: Yeah. And that's the whole thing to me with the possibility of Asha going to Portland is that I don't see Houston doing it because it makes their life so much worse. Like Houston, if Houston's sitting there, and I understand, I think that GMs in general are, Overrate the impact of trading within conference, but if you see yourself as a championship contender and you make another team in your conference in a championship contender, that's where I would draw that line.
1: Yeah. Oh well. I mean, there, there's no question about it. You can't you can't sign Dwight Howard and then make a move that takes you out of a championship contention. Like you, you just can't do it. Dwight's not going to put up with it. I mean, hell, Dwight might Dwight might want to trade or try to get Kevin McHale fired if they do that. So you never know. I mean, Daryl Morey, he's He's never afraid to take a risk. Uh, for me, the big thing for me, if I'm Maury, is I'm making sure I get a short-term asset. There's just there's no point to taking and getting rid of a player that's a great player for you right now, and not adding to this current team because this current team they're really good as they are, but they're just one piece away from being a great team. If you if you can put uh, I, maybe. I mean, it's, it's hard to say that Patrick Beverly isn't a good fit for them at the point right now. But I think if they had someone that was a more effective shooter, that, uh, that was kind of like a more effective uh, ball handler, that might be more ideal for them. And they probably could use someone that was better at the four. Uh, Terrence Jones has been really good this year, but they, I think they're looking for somebody more like Ryan Anderson. And Ryan Anderson uh, is like the most fun trade in the league for everybody, that straight-up swap of Oshik for Anderson. But New Orleans loves Anderson so much they won't give him up, even though Oshik, I think, is a better fit, because I see Anthony Davis as a power forward long-term. So if they can get someone like Anderson and Millsap, I think that's the most ideal situation for them. But I I wouldn't be surprised if he just does it for two first-round picks just because Daryl Morey is obsessed with draft picks.
0: As an Atlantic Division writer, what would you, if you were the GM of the Knicks, what would you do with Melo? Uh,
1: that's the most it's it's the most frustrating question in the world because I've never been a Carmelo Anthony fan, and my my lack of fandom for him is at an all time high right now. I, j- I just don't see how you could win if he's your best player because he's he is just he's a black hole offensively, and he hasn't changed it looked like he was starting to change his philosophy on basketball but then he did what he did last year in the playoffs and it was pretty apparent that he isn't he isn't really going to change i mean he's i've never seen a player more content to shoot 30% in a game than i've ever seen than with carmelo anthony it's it's mind blowing to watch i don't see how you can win a title with him maybe you put like you put two great players around him make him uh, make him a part of a big 3 that's your only other way to do it but if Tyson Chandler is part of that big three, it's not going to be good enough. And obviously Amari completely ties them down. And that's – I mean, if, if, they, if it weren't for the Amari-Stoudemire deal, the, this team could have been contending for titles for the last few years because Melo is that good and Tyson Chandler is definitely good enough that they could have. But with Amari weighing them down, they're not going to be able to add – they're not going to be able to add someone that's going to make them contend with Carmelo for the next two years. And I wouldn't be – I would expect Carmella to walk away if he can get into a good situation in two years because that New York franchise is very poorly run from a front office perspective, which is why I don't want that job as the hypothetical GM, by the way. But there's just there, – there isn't really any upside to this Knicks franchise. They've pretty much done the same thing that they did under Isaiah. They forfeited their entire future, all of their first-round picks, to get mediocre players, and they're going to be mediocre.
0: Agreed on all counts. I wrote a piece recently that I, I don't think that Melo can be the best or second best player in a championship team and saying like, oh, he could be the second best player if he was playing with LeBron. That's not fair. A lot of guys could be that. Yeah. But so to me, that means that if you can find somebody who values him highly enough, I think you trade him and I think you trade him now. Sure. Because all you're basically all you're doing if you're the next to me is if you can get guys who are really, really good, you do that through whatever means you can. And they can't really do that through the draft this year because they don't have a pick. They can't do it through free agency until 2015. So you do it through trades if you can, and if you can't, then you clear the decks and do it through free agency. Yeah. Because that's really that's really all you can do. And what's so crazy to me, I, I, I talked with uh, Modiano, who writes for Real GM, who's a New Yorker, about this, and he, he was talking about how he doesn't feel they have the patience for it. And that's fine, but I think then the role of ownership is to say, I don't care if you have the patience. My goal is to win championships, and this is the only way we can do it. Well,
1: that's why Jerry Jones isn't winning anymore. It's why Al Davis wasn't winning. It's when you have these strong-handed owners that just want to keep bringing in, spending money, and bringing bringing in who they think are great players that are really overpaid players, it it backfires. It always does. A franchise that's run by ownership is never going to be successful, and I can't think of any in recent memory besides Dallas that one year that was successful. in Dallas, while Mark Cuban is really the face of that franchise, the front office was, are the ones that were really calling the shots and all that. He still trusts his front office and lets them run the team. It's really just that the Knicks are stuck with James Dolan, and they're never going to be successful if James Dolan is the guy running the show.
0: I'll, I'll no, the a question, or at least I think of it as fun. Excluding whatever team on James is on, what Eastern Conference – collection of players and assets would you most want to have moving forward
1: ooh i mean the pacers i'm trying to i'm trying to decide whether i want to say i'd rather have the pacers than the heat it's really it's it's that close i might actually rather have the pacers than the heat if i'm looking at like like 5 to 10 year run it's 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 neck and neck really and that's only because lebron is lebron if it were if you put just like If you put any other player besides LeBron on that Miami team, I would pick the Pacers. But just because it's LeBron, it's it's a tough call. Uh, But Indiana is going to be competing for titles for the next five or six years at the very least. They've got all their best players locked up. I mean, we'll see what happens with Lance, but it's hard for me to imagine Lance Stevenson leaving that team. Uh, But they've got two incredible young players in George and Hibbert that are not even in their primes yet and are locked up for the next five years. I mean, it, it's there's not even another team really close to what Indiana is right now.
0: Agreed. The, the, I'm intrigued to see what Philadelphia does, because I think Michael Carter-Williams has been better than I thought he would be this early, and I lo- I still love New Orleans Noel. So well. I will. Uh-huh. But, yeah, but Indiana, I mean, what you're doing with, with Philly is you're like, oh, they have this really potential shiny thing in the distance. Indiana has that shiny thing right now. And you you don't take you don't take the possibility of a of a championship team over the reality of a championship team.
1: Well, it's funny you say that about Philly because coming into the season, people were questioning whether Philly would break uh, the Charlotte record for the worst record of all time. So I'm surprised you say that. And the thing is, I mean, right now Philly doesn't have any assets. I mean, they got Carter Williams and Noel, who they both have high potential, but I mean, you don't. You don't see them as potential superstars. You see them as potential, like, maybe all-stars. But then again, I'm sure that's what people were saying about Hibbert and George three years ago. And now, look, they're both superstars, so you can never really rule anything out there. But um, I, I, Charlotte is a fascinating team. They've got, I think, a lot of guys that could be good, but I just don't think they have any guys that can actually be great. Uh, I'm, tr- I'm trying. I'm going down the list here. I mean, Detroit, obviously... They've got a lot of talent there, but who knows if they're going to make that team work. And then uh, Cleveland. Well, we can still put Cleveland in that mix because you know, Kyrie is Kyrie. And even though his injuries have gotten in the way of him turning into a superstar, he's still clearly such an amazing talent. And they've got a lot of other good players on the team. Tristan Thompson's been criminally underrated most of his career. Uh, Andrew Bynum, if he if he can start to get healthy, that's a massive steal for them. Uh, but for me my favorite team in the Eastern Conference is Orlando. They've got a Vucevic who's awesome, a Lapido who looks like he's going to be awesome, a Flalo, who hasn't gotten any credit over the last year, ever since that big trade, he's been fantastic ever. He's probably he maybe has been the best player value-wise in that big Dwight Howard trade ever since ever since they everybody got shipped around there. A flalo has been amazing for Orlando. And he is possibly getting traded again just because he's 28 years old. He's in his prime. He's a great two-way player, and he's showing that he's a good scorer now, and he can pass too. Um, And and then Orlando has Tobias Harris, another guy that has a lot of potential. He's kind of one of those under-the-radar Paul George from a couple years ago types where he's got a really complete game, and nobody really pays so much attention because he's been hiding in Milwaukee and Orlando his whole career.
0: And then that also doesn't include Maurice Harkless. That doesn't include um, Andrew Nicholson. Nicholson, And then also they're going to have picks and they have a good GM. So yeah, Orlando I think is in there. The other team, if you're separating out the talent on the floor versus the GM and they've screwed it up a little bit is Washington. I think that wall and wall and Beal is a phenomenal building block. They're both super young. They're both super good. And, the other pieces on the team can be, can be made better. I think that they've made a series of bad decisions trying to build too quickly. I think that they did that. They also – Otto Porter was – he was such a, such a strange lowering your ceiling pick for a team that has such a high ceiling. But there, there are a lot of them – I think Charlotte's the same thing. You know, I think that if, they, if you take out the mistakes that they have in general managing and owning, owning, ownership – they could be well, and I think that's how Boston could do really well, too, is that Boston is one of the only teams in the league that has a really strong ownership rep- reputation and a really strong GM reputation, and that's a selling point to players, and that's a selling point to retain players as well.
1: Well, the bottom line is teams with bad management, it doesn't really matter who they get. They're going to end up – those guys are if – if you're a team with bad management, the good player is going to leave eventually. I mean, It always, it always happens. There's so many teams that they get really good, nice young players and they eventually leave for greener pastures because management has shown that they're not going to be able to build a winning ball club around them. Now, it looked like that was going to happen with John Wall. Washington luckily was able to hang on to him at the last second with a strong performance in the second half of the season. But if they hadn't gotten that team together for the second half of last season, I think he would have bolted. He would have gone for the next team that showed that they had a little bit of promise and a good player to play around him. But you know what? Washington, they played well the second half. They drafted Bradley Beal, which proved to be a great pick, and they were able to narrowly hang on to him. But if I'm the Celtics, I think I'm looking at some of the terribly managed teams around the league, and I'm thinking, you know what? One of those guys is going to end up being available, and we're going to pounce on him when that opportunity comes.
0: Okay, well, thank you so much for taking the time. It was a lot of fun.
1: I'm glad we finally got to make it happen. I can't wait to do it again.
0: Thanks again to Jared Weiss for coming on. You can follow him on Twitter at CLNS underscore J-A-R-E-D-W-E-I-S-S. And you can listen to him on the Garden Report, which is the Celtics post-game show on Celtics blog and CLNS radio. I'd also like to thank Haven Kaplan Minor for coming on. You can follow him on Twitter at H-K-A-P-L-A-N-M. And you can read him on Real GM. His series called Fix It is up there. And if you go to the link through Real GM, you can find a link to the page. Any insight that you have on how to make the show better, you can send to me on Twitter at D-A-N-N-Y-L-E-R-O-U-X. Or you can email it to daniel.larue at realgm.com. Always appreciate it, and as as I always say, if you have any guests that you want to have on the show, you can let me know, and also you can let them know, say, hey, love to have you on Real GM Radio. Be always fun, have always have a great group of people, but it's always good to have more insight to make the show better. Thanks so much for listening, and I hope you all have an excellent holiday season. Take care, and make it a great day.